I guess that's quite an introduction uh, when you can pretty much choose the content of the introduction. <laughs> it almost, uh, in a sense, makes me want to get back out there again, but uh, I guess on second thought, we better not get too carried away, huh? Well, it's good to be here with you this morning. I, in thinking of the video, I have a seven-year-old daughter, and uh, after watching it uh, the other day, I heard her say to my wife, Mom, I wish Dad was still young. And uh, <laughs> my wife, showing great loyalty, said, uh, Well, he is still young. Why do you say that? And she said, Because he had so much more hair. <laughs> So I guess kids have a way of putting or keeping things in perspective, don't they? Well, in mentioning my wife, I, I asked her to come here and uh, uh, maybe to think about talking to you this morning but she, because you probably get a better or a truer perspective of me, but she said no. So, but she is here anyway, and uh, I'd like to ask her if she'd stand, and uh, maybe that would be a way of introducing her. Well, hockey for me is in very many ways like another lifetime, something long ago and far away that in many ways as well I can't relate to very well anymore. As Mark mentioned, I've been out of the game now for uh, 12, almost 13 years. And uh, I guess in watching the, the film clip, I'm reminded of the truth of James chapter 4 where James tells us, he says, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And if you and I are vapors, then the truth of a hockey career is how much more of a vapor is a hockey career. And Paul also talks about that aspect as well, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians 9, when speaking of the athlete, he says they do it to receive a perishable wreath. And thinking of that perishable wreath and all the things that I pursued, the truth is it was a great thrill for me to play, to play in the National Hockey League, something I'd always dreamed of doing as a youngster, to compete with and against some very, very good hockey players. But by far and away, the thing that I'm most thankful for is that while I was in that process of pursuing a perishable wreath, an empty thing, if you will, that God in his grace came after me and saved me and gave me something imperishable a relationship with Jesus Christ. And not only is that something imperishable that will never fade away, but the truth of that is that it only grows more precious with time as God enables me to grow in my relationship with Him. And that has been true of my experience since I came to know Christ. Well, it's a privilege for me to be here with you this morning. My own life in so many ways has been enriched by this place, uh, I have been taught and continue to be taught and by many here and uh, they still serve as examples to me in my own life. And our family has come to know some who have been students who have now gone on and graduated and we still know some of you that are still pursuing that and uh, our lives have been enriched and encouraged by that. As Mark mentioned, he's asked me to speak to you today about athletes and materialism. And I guess that's a fair topic, isn't it? Revenues and salaries in the world of professional sports today have risen to very high levels. In fact, that really understates it. The levels that 
salaries and revenues are today is really mind-boggling. Revenues in the, all the major sports now is well in excess of $1 billion a year. And salaries are well into the $1 million neighborhood. Let me see if I can help with that context a little bit. I read recently where a pitcher in the big leagues who last year won two games just signed a contract for $1.3 million. There's a player that plays for the Boston Red Sox, a long-time player, very well-known player. This year will make $2.8 million not to play. And right here uh, in Southern California, the Angels uh, had a player turn down a $16 million four-year contract. Let me see if I can help put that in some context for you, $16 million. Before I do, you're well aware that uh, there's a story of athletes that uh, they're not particularly well endowed with intellectual capacity in many cases. And this decision may well go to prove that point. <laughs> 16, I mean, think about it, $16 million. Let's say with federal and state taxes, that's in the 40% bracket. He's left with $9.6 million after paying his taxes. $9.6 million, if he takes that and invests it in uh, something tax-free, a municipal bond or something, bond fund, earns 5%, that's $480,000 a year tax-free, or $40,000 a month for the rest of his life. So this athlete said no to $40,000 a year, a month, tax-free for life in exchange for playing baseball for four years. Well, what would I like to accomplish with you here this morning? I'd like to give you my own perspective uh, on life as an athlete, tell you a little bit about what it's like to be a professional athlete, particularly a professional hockey player, and then talk about how materialism affects the athlete. You've no doubt gathered your own impressions by uh, reading in the paper or hearing on television about these people, and I'm hopeful that this morning that my own impressions and uh, experiences will help give you a better perspective on things. Well, first of all, I want to mention that athletes are people. They're just like you and I. They do all the same kind of things. They're very much just like you and I. As far as financial habits are concerned, again, they're just like you and I. Some of them spend too much, but so do non-athletes. Some of them are prone to hoard and stockpile assets, but so do some non-athletes. And some are very shrewd businessmen, just like some non-athletes. And then some are financially immature and irresponsible. And there are some that are wise stewards that are concerned that God be honored in their management of the resources that he's given them. And secondly, pro sports is more than just a game. It's more than just sports. It's big business. It's big business for owners. It's big business for merchandisers. It's big business for advertisers, for the media, and for the athlete. It's big, big business. In a sense, when the athlete moves in to become a pro hockey player, there's a transition where he spent all his life playing a game that he loves to play, and he's played it for free. And now he's got to be a businessman, and he's got to compete against these shrewd people that have spent their whole lives being trained to be good businessmen. Who are the participants in this money game? Well, there's the owners, who at times can often be ruthless. There's agents who represent the athlete, who at times can be less than scrupulous. And there's the athlete himself, who is many times unsuspecting 
naive and unsophisticated in this busy and fast world of professional sports. Well, I want to present the athlete to you this morning using what I call three realities, an economic reality and what I've called a psychological reality. And I know that's a dangerous word to use here, but you'll understand that it's a harmless uh, way to communicate something. And then also social or lifestyle realities. You can see that okay? Well, let's start with the economic realities. This chart or framework here is designed to give you an idea of what the financial playing field for the athlete looks like. Games, athletic games, are uh, held in arenas or on playing fields and so on. This is the playing field, if you will, where the financial game, the financial excuse me, the financial life of the athlete is held. Let me see if I can put this in some context for you. Down on the bottom, this line is the timeline, the age, age 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, and so on. Along the top here are earnings or dollars, the income that the athlete earns. So just by help, uh, by way of observation, you can see in this first box A is when the active playing career is going on. Uh, you can see that there's at age 20 or so in hockey players that all of a sudden they're making a lot of money. That rises up here until their career is over and then something happens where the income comes down here and then their second career or whatever and then box C would be what I'm calling retirement. So what are some things that we can take away from that? Well, box A I'm being generous. I'm saying that athletes will play an average of 10 years. That's not the case. Most athletes, most athletes' careers are very short, between four and five years. But nonetheless, this communicates the idea of income volatility, if you will. Rises rapidly, falls, hopefully more stable, and then on into retirement. Well, in light of this reality here, the economic reality, what might be a good objective? for an athlete to have? Well, I think a simple statement, an obvious statement would be to capture some of this income in this box here and defer it over into boxes B and C. And hopefully this picture will help you understand that. There's two ways really that the athlete can do that. One is at the contract level. He can have his contract, some of his payments deferred off into future years. If an athlete signs a big contract, some of that money can be paid here. If he signs a million dollar contract, he can have 100,000 a year spread out over 10 years and so on. Another way would be what I'm calling financial management, which is converting labor to capital. Converting the labor that goes on in box A here to capital that would provide income in boxes B and C. And when you think about it, there's only two ways that income can come. That's from labor or from capital either people at work or money at work. Those are the only two ways that income is provided. And God is the source of all income, and those are the means that he uses to supply our needs. So in keeping with this, an objective that the athlete should have is, and that's supposed to be a safe or a, a bank, a personal bank, he should have some kind of a target out there that he wants to begin saving and investing his money so that he'll have something 
when his playing career is over. I think this is a wise pursuit. It sort of tells the same story of Joseph in Egypt, how he foresaw the coming coming famine and was wise enough to store the grain in the years of plenty so that when the years of famine came, he'd have something. And God commended him for that. Well, I mentioned a few moments ago that uh, the two means or sources of income that God uses are labor and capital, and I know that in a crowd of college students, some of you are taking exception with that. Immediately, as soon as I say sources of income, particularly two, I know a number of you are saying, oh, that's easy, mom and dad. Right? Anybody say that? Okay. Well, the question on the floor here, given these realities, is how is the athlete going to operate his income to convert labor to capital? He's got three choices. He can spend more than he earns, he can spend what he earns, or he can spend less than he earns. It's hard to imagine that athletes making the amounts of money that they're making today can actually spend more than they're earning, but you know what? They can and do. What that looks like is getting up here somewhere and just spending and spending. What do they do? They buy cars, they buy clothes, they buy houses, they buy jewelry, you name it. They become avid consumers and they buy it for all kinds of people. The results of that kind of, those kinds of spending patterns are there's nothing left for box B. When the playing career is over and they're no more playing, it's a major adjustment to get back to a normal life. It's not uncommon for a person with these kind of habits to leave professional sports with a balance sheet that shows more liabilities than assets and an income statement that shows no income. In other words, they've got big problems. And this kind of a scenario happens to all kinds of people. It doesn't, it's no respecter of persons. You could make a lot of money in your professional career. And still, if these are your habits and patterns, you could leave the game in that kind of a situation. Well, next is spending what you earn, which would be right here, and really the same thing applies. The results are the same. You're left with nothing when it's time to move on for the rest of your life. The results of both of these spending patterns can be particularly devastating. Why do I say that? Because this period in here, this period of transition, is probably the hardest time in that athlete's life. Why do I say that? Well, he spent his whole life dreaming to be a professional athlete. And when that last game has been played and the career is over, it's a very, very difficult adjustment. He's been so-and-so hockey player or so-and-so basketball player his whole life. His friends introduce him that way. He sees himself that way. And it's very, very difficult in this period when all that is now behind him and he has no idea of what he's going to do with the rest of his life. You lay financial problems on top of that kind of a internal set of circumstances, and as I mentioned, the results can be devastating. Well, let's take a look at spending less than you earn. It may look something like this. Let's say a pattern is established, a spending pattern, where less than you earn will be spent. What happens there? Well, we've got all this surplus here, right in here, that we can use to fill up this shortfall down here. All right? This whole area here that's in need of income. 
And that's the objective that the athlete should have. Well, this is an obvious thing and states a pretty clear picture. The question is, why don't they do it? Well, the answer may be found in what I'm calling the psychological and social realities. Most athletes, when they turn pro, are very young, 18, 20, 22 years old. And two things that are things that rarely go together are youth and fiscal responsibility. It's life at a man's level. It's an adult, high-powered, sophisticated world. And it can be very, very intimidating. I can remember in my own career, my own life, when I graduated from college in 1971 and uh, went down, I played in the minors for a couple of years. I negotiated my first contract in Oklahoma City in a minor league uh, farm club with the Bruins. And I figured, hey, I've got all this college training and uh, this will be a piece of cake. So I found out what some of the other guys on the team were making, signing bonuses and what they were playing for the first year. We were making a lot of money back then. Uh, signing bonuses of what I wanted was $7,500 a year and $8,500 a year to play. That's what I was looking for. So I went in. The general manager said, hey, we're really, uh, really glad to have you on the team and we'd like to sign you to a contract. I said, great. I said, uh, this is what I want. I know what uh, the other guys are getting and uh, I think I'm worth every bit as much as they are. He said, well, uh, that's too bad. Uh, we're willing to offer you $6,000 signing bonus and $7,500 to play. Uh, I said, well, uh, what are my other choices? He said, well, my secretary can get you a plane ticket to go back to Dayton, Ohio, which is the next rung down on the ladder, or you can just go home. So I said, well, why don't you get that ticket and I'll go home. I said, you probably don't know this, but I've been to college and I really don't need hockey. I could be out building a successful business career and so on. So, so rather than me think about it, why don't you think about it? Well, well the next morning I got up and the secretary called me and said, uh, just wanted to confirm that everything's all set. We've got your ticket home and uh, notified the coach and the trainers and your equipment bag is here at the office ready for you to come in and pick up. So I signed the contract. <laughs> and peer pressure can be strong as well. I played uh, my, uh, one of my later years in the NHL and there was a rookie, a 20-year-old, first-round draft choice. And uh, uh, talking about peer pressure, he went out and spent a signing bonus, or part of it, he bought a Lincoln Continental. This was in 1978. A four-door black Lincoln Continental. And if you can picture that, you understand the kind of humor that I'm talking about. Well, he got such grief from the guys on the team because he looked so funny driving around that big old car. Here's a 20-year-old. So after about two weeks, he traded that thing in for a Corvette, lost about $4,000 in the transfer. So peer pressure can be a factor as well. Most people lack the background. Most athletes do. They're young. They've never been trained in how to handle money. They've never been trained in how to handle themselves in life at that level. Another story that will... Uh, give you some idea. There was a player that uh, thought he was really onto something. He was able to make telephone calls and he never got a bill from the phone company. He had a calling card number. So he gave that number around to a whole bunch of people. And everybody, when they were on the road, were calling friends long distance, calling all kinds of people. And this guy thought he was a hero. He was really pulling something over on the phone company. Well, this went by for the whole year. And at the end of the year, when he was meeting with his agent for his financial review, his agent 
brought up the issue of a $7,000 phone bill. What that athlete didn't realize was his phone bills were being sent to his agent, and his agent was paying his phone bills. So some are even at the level where they can't understand that. Most players know they need help, and they pursue an agent to help them. And in many cases, uh, they need someone to give them some equipment to make that decision up to what kind of an agent to have. So the truth of this is that even though poor decisions are made in the playing career, they're never felt until the playing days are over. That's the truth of it. If you're making a lot of money, you can make a lot of mistakes. But if you stop making money, then the mistakes that you've made are going to come home to roost. You know, this is a particularly sad time as well, this life in Box B here that I'm calling Box B once the playing career is over. The reason is that most athletes have the mindset that their career is an end, not a means to an end. And picture that they've spent their whole life, you guys and, and gals here that are athletes know that, you've spent your whole life to that point dreaming of playing whatever it is you're playing. And when you get there, you've arrived. It's the culmination of a lifelong dream. You can't see beyond that. And that's certainly true of a, of a professional athlete. Rather than viewing it as a means to an end, viewing life in its total perspective, they don't do that. So life in box B becomes a very difficult period. And I could even say that once people get in here, in many cases, the heart is taken right out of them. They die. They really do. They just don't get put in the ground until sometime later on. It's a very sad period for many, many people. Life is a time of remember when. A couple of years ago, I went to Chicago uh, for the NHL All-Star Game. And uh, we were pursuing some other things. We believed that the owners had stolen some money out of our pension plan. So we were there to try to get some answers. So there was a whole gang of us, some very well-known players were there. And one thing that really impressed me, there was one player that I had watched when I was growing up. And he was a great player. He's now in the Hall of Fame, I think. He spent the whole weekend at a bar in this hotel in Chicago getting drunk with another former player. And all they did was talk about how things were back then. Hey, remember this game. Remember this time. The whole weekend. And just before I left, he came up to me. And he put his hand out and said, I want to say thank you for helping put this weekend together. This has been the best weekend of my life. That's a sad story. Well, how about social realities? The social aspects of being a professional athlete, there's pressure. Pressure from within and pressure from without. The pressure from within often comes from teammates. You're in in a sense, a very enclosed and separate culture. And the pressure from without comes from the world around you, the watching world. The expectations that teammates have can often be uh, felt reasonably early as well in the, in the career. In my life, when I was playing with the Bruins, my first road trip, we all went out for dinner, as we often did. And when you get 20 guys, hockey players, and some converging on some restaurant, Ordering and so on can be uh, something to behold. Waiters and waitresses bringing all kinds of stuff. 
In other words, we were running up a pretty big tab. Well, it being my first year in the NHL, I was still trying to be careful with my money because I was just starting to make some and I wanted to keep some. So I said, the best thing for me to do is to order something like chicken that uh, isn't going to cost me a whole lot of money. So I did that. Well, when the bill came, I got my welcome to the National Hockey League. Somebody, the captain of the team, said, well, the bill is so much $100 and there's 20 of us, so boom, we'll split it. So I said, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, our, our rookies aren't allowed to ask any questions, so I paid my share. But after that, I said, hey, wait a minute. I can do the math on this one. If I continue this pattern, I'm going to lose. So I may as well order the most expensive thing on the menu, and then I'm at least going to get what I pay for, and there's a chance that if someone else orders something less than that, that I'll get more than what I paid for. So that was a lesson that I learned, and I don't know whether you can say I was uh, forced into uh, a stewardship issue on that, but uh, that was nonetheless an experience of mine. Another thing is that athletes are immediately the center of attention. And let me give you some examples of that. When I made it to the National Hockey League, I'd been accustomed to packing my own bags. When we'd practice and play games, we'd come in and take all our stuff off and hang it up. That was what I had grown up doing my whole life. But when I got to the National Hockey League and I did that, the first time the trainer came over and chewed me out. He said, look, you don't do that up here. I hang up the equipment. That's my job. You save your energies for the game. Besides, it gives me a better way to stay on top of the equipment. So he yanked down all the stuff and put it back up again. So that was welcome to the big leagues. And my sticks, he came over and said, I want you to pick out a pattern, just how you want your stick. And I'll go ahead and order your sticks for you. So I went back into the uh, kind of carpenter's room there and fixed out a stick just how I wanted it. The handle, the blade, the curve, the thickness, everything. Just my perfect dream stick. Gave it to him. He sends it to the stick company and a couple of weeks later about six dozen of my own sticks come with my name on it. And that was true with equipment. That was true with everything. I had a car dealer call me up and say, I've got a deal for you I want you to think about. I want you to come over to my lot Pick out any car on my lot you want, and I want you to have it for as long as you want it. All I want is the ability to call you up and say, I'd like to use your game tickets. We got two complimentary game tickets. I'd like to use those two tickets anytime I want. <laughs> I said, great. I went up there, picked out my car, and he only called about ten times for tickets. So you're really in an artificial kind of a place. It's a very different kind of existence. Decisions are made for you, people pay attention to you, and you're doing what you've always dreamed of doing. Well, let's talk about materialism. As I was thinking about our time here this morning, I was asking myself, what is it anyway? What is materialism? Are athletes materialistic just because they make lots of money? Is a person materialistic because he plays in the big leagues? Is materialism based on how much money we make? Is it based on what kind of car we drive? If it's a $20,000 car, is that materialistic? Or 30 or 60? Or how about a house? Where do you draw the line on this anyway, materialism? Well, the dictionary helps us out. Definition is any opinion or interest based on purely material interests or devotion to material objects. 
athletes also, we had a, a program installed that uh, probably wasn't designed to hedge off this materialism, but it nonetheless may have accomplished that. As we were on the road, oftentimes people would go and buy clothes, suits, and things like that. And it was uh, an occurrence from time to time when somebody bought something they were especially fond of, like a suit. The rest of the players, or some of the other players on the team, for some very strange reason, felt compelled when that person was out on the ice and that suit was hanging up in the locker room to get the scissors and cut an arm off or a leg off or something like that. That's one way how athletes have fun, I guess. The Bible helps us out as well, understanding materialism. Jesus in Matthew 6:19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy. Materialism is really an idea, I believe, of treasure, of value. We could call it even worldliness. It's an unhealthy fascination with the world's things. It's really more than money, I believe. It's the world and our relationship to it. I wonder if I could read a quote from Dr. Lloyd-Jones that is certainly worthy of reading. Treasures is a very large term and all-inclusive. It includes money, but it is not money only. It means something much more important. Our Lord here is not so much concerned about our possessions as with our attitude towards our possessions. It is not what a man may have, but what he thinks of his wealth, what his attitude is towards it. There is nothing wrong with having wealth in and of itself. What can is a man's relationship to his wealth. And the same thing is true about everything that money can buy. Indeed, we go further. It is a question of one's whole attitude towards life in this world. Our Lord is dealing here with people who get their main or even total satisfaction in this life from things that belong to this world only. What he is warning against here, in other words, is that a man should confine his ambition, his interests, and his hopes to this life. No matter what it is or how small it is, if it is everything to you, that is your treasure. That is the thing for which you are living. This is the danger against which our, which our Lord is warning us at this particular point. Not only love of money, but love of honor, the love of position, the love of status, whatever it may be. Anything that stops with this life and this world, these are the things of which we must be wary lest they become our treasure. Well, as a young boy growing up, growing up in Montreal, I wasn't aware of the Lord's admonition in that passage of Scripture. I wasn't aware of the idea of treasure on earth. But one thing I was aware of, that sports held a tremendous attraction to me, particularly hockey. The challenge of competing, the thrill of winning were a big part of me. And growing up in Montreal where hockey was the conversation of just about every dinner table, I wanted to be a hockey player. I watched and played and dreamed hockey. I wanted to play in the National Hockey League where the best players played. That's where I wanted to be. Well, I had a mother that brought me to church. She wanted me to grow up to, to know God, to be a Christian. And I went to church as a young boy until I was about 12 years old. I didn't know Christ, but I knew I wanted to be a hockey player. So 
So I told my mother I wanted to stop going to church because I could be using my time much better being a hockey player. And she let me do it. And hockey was my life. Growing up as a teenager, on into college, on into the minors, and then on into the National League. That was me. That was the thrill of my life, being a hockey player. Well, I made it to the National Hockey League, which was a great accomplishment for me. It was a thrill. But you know what I found out? That something was still missing. It was incomplete. There was a nagging emptiness inside of me that I couldn't get away from. No matter what I was doing, there were those moments always when I was by myself, when I had to stop pretending and start dealing with reality. I thought that emptiness would go away if I could become a better player, if we could win the Stanley Cup, if my teammates thought better of me. At that time I was single and I thought if I had a wife. But you know what I found out? No matter what plateau I reached, it didn't bring it. Well, around about that time, some things were happening around me that really got my attention. Two of my close college friends were dying of cancer at age 25. One had leukemia and one had Hodgkin's disease. This was two years after I just buried my best friend who was killed in Vietnam, the guy that I grew up with. And I was asking myself, what is going on here? This is not how it's supposed to happen. Here I am doing what I've always dreamed of doing. I'm empty inside. My life is becoming a game where I'm trying to pretend that I've got it all together. And I go to the hospital and watch my friends die. There had to be an answer. Well, one thing I didn't mention when I was in Oklahoma City, I was driving around one day and I went by a big bookstore, a Christian bookstore. I went in and bought a Bible. And I stuffed it in my drawer so nobody would know I had it. But I began reading it. And when I got to this point of my life, I began reading it a whole lot more, believe me. I was looking for answers. And the more I read the Bible, you know what I found out? The more I needed Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ that I saw in the Bible was different than what I had thought. And yet as time went on, I knew that was what I needed. Well, God used these circumstances in my life and I believe the convicting power of his word to bring me to New Year's Eve in 1977. It was in the Marriott Hotel down here. We were playing the Kings New Year's night. And when all the guys were planning all the New Year's Eve activities, I said, no. I said, this night, I'm going to do what I know I need to do to get right with God. And I set that night aside and I got my Bible and I, with all that I could muster, wanted to get my life right with God. I focused on 2 Corinthians 5.17. You know that verse. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. More than anything in my life, that's what I wanted. I wanted that to be true. But I was saying to myself and to God, but God, you don't know my life, what I've done with my life. How can you forgive me? How can that all be gone? How can you make it new? But rather than try to figure it out that night, I chose to believe God and he gave me the grace to do that. And that's the time I set that I became a Christian, that God made me new on the inside. I knew that the outside couldn't bring anything. I'd exhausted everything I could possibly find. And I knew that the only hope was that God could do and would do what he said he would. I chose to believe him that night. 
Well, God began to work a change in my heart. And just to touch on one thing, when this idea of treasure on earth. If you would have asked me back then after I'd become a Christian how important hockey was, I would have said, well, I love hockey. But I love God too. And if you would have said, which is more important? I would have said, well, God is more important. I love hockey, but I want to live for Christ. Well, there were some things in there that God wanted me to see. I remember renegotiating a contract that summer with the Bruins and they gave me everything I wanted. Everything I wanted. And I thought, this is great. God is going to make me a star. And I'm really going to be something. I'm going to be somebody so that I can have a testimony. I can have a platform to speak for Christ and see other, people's, other people come to know God. Well, also that summer I was meeting with a friend who was helping me grow in my faith. And after we were spending time together, he said, you know what I think we ought to do? I said, what? He said, I think I ought to go in to the Bruins' office and tell them, using your name, that you've become a Christian and that we want to set up a chapel and a Bible study in case anybody else on the team wants to get involved. Well, let me help set this context as well. The Bruins took great pride in being rough and tough and rugged in every sense of the word. So I knew that this would not be well received if he went there. And yet I also knew that if I said no, I'd be turning my back on God, which I didn't want to do. So the fat was in the fire. So this friend of mine went into the Bruins, told them what I just mentioned. And just as training camp started, guess what? I was gone. Went from the best team to the worst team in the league with Washington. Some of you may remember that. The circumstances of my life were anything but what I would have hoped. Everything about hockey just about went bad. Nothing went right. Everything went wrong. And at that time, I was meeting with another friend of mine in Washington who was helping me grow in my faith. And he challenged me to memorize scripture. And I can remember working on Joshua 1.8. I had these verse cards that I'd use when I was driving in the car. And you know Joshua 1.8. It makes a promise. It says if we meditate... If we think about God's word, he'll give us prosperity and success. And I was saying, God, what's going on here? I'm doing all this stuff. Where's the success? It wasn't there. The opposite was there. Well, along a little while, another verse came along that collided with Joshua 1.8. That was 1 John 2:15 and 16. It said, don't love the world or the things of the world, for the things that are in the world aren't of the Father. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. And that stopped me dead in my tracks. That's what I was doing. I was loving the world and I had my own picture of success. And I was saying, God, this is what I want. This is what you must mean by success. But God had another definition. I had to learn that lesson. The three years I played in the National Hockey League as a Christian were three of the toughest years in my life from a hockey standpoint but they were three of the best years in my life because God wanted to teach me the lessons that only He knew I needed to learn. Is materialism important? I believe it is. There's more in the Bible that reference money than any other single thing, more than heaven and hell combined. It's a subtle and even dangerous thing. I played with a player back in the early 70s, a very well-known player, that jumped to the World Hockey Association, got a million dollars 
to sign back in the early 70s. That was a lot of money then. It's a lot of money now. He got a million dollars to play for four years. And you know what happened to him? It ruined him. He was never the same person after that. He was never the same player. That money ruined him. And it's dangerous even more so, I believe, for the Christian. Let me read some verses to you in 1 Timothy 6. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a fang. I don't know about you, but those words ruin and destruction and wandering away from the faith has set off against all the stuff of the world send flashing red lights before my eyes. I want to get as far away from that as I possibly can. Well, how do we guard against it? I believe it's important, it's subtle, it's dangerous. How do we guard against it? Well, very simply, through stewardship is one way. Stewardship, the management of something that belongs to somebody else for that other person's benefit. Whatever it is that God gives us, whether it's money or time or talent, abilities, God wants us to be stewards, to use that for His benefit. How do we do that with money? Well, simple thing like a budget, not spending more than you earn, like I talked about earlier, doing wise things, not being wrapped up in the things of the world. And how do we do that? The one thing I'd like to leave with you that may well be the most important thing, I talked about identity for the hockey player and what a critical time it can be for the athlete when they're done. They don't know who they are. And do you know what I found out about many Christians? Probably true to some extent with all of us is that we have an identity problem. We really don't know who we are. That's probably why Paul spends so much time in the Bible saying, do you not know this? Know this. It's the appeal to our mind that once we have the knowledge of who we are, that we can then better handle the activities of life. So it's almost a thing like we have activities here and I've talked about a budget, which is an activity. And if we have an activity that's a good one, that has an objective, that'll move us further along than if we just have an activity with no objective. But those two things in and of themselves will be empty if there's not the next thing, which is purpose. If you have activities heading to an objective all wrapped up in a purpose, then you're going to have meaning to your life. And as I look at the life of the Apostle Paul, he really knew who he was. He knew why God had placed him there. And because of that, I can see him making decisions about how he used his resources, whether it was his money or his time or whatever. He knew who he was. Well, I'd like to close with one analogy of the Christian to the athlete. A lot of people, and I remember even when I was playing, people would come up, mothers and fathers, with their their son or their daughter and say, tell me what my son or daughter needs to do to become a great athlete, to play in the National Hockey League. And in many cases, I wish I had an answer. I wish I could tell them and say, this is all you need to do and you'll make it to the National Hockey League. If you work hard, if you practice, if you eat right and rest or whatever it is, you'll make it. I couldn't make that promise. But the one thing I do know about athletes in my own life and as I saw it in others, 
Do you know where athletes are made? Athletes are not made in the bright lights and the thrill of the competition of the game. They're made in the -the out-of-the-way places, the quiet places, where no one sees them. In Canada, it may be in the thick of winter, out on a farm in western Canada where it's 40 below zero, and there's a young hockey player shooting a puck against the garage door to learn how to shoot, all by himself, paying the price. And you know what I found, too, in the Christian life? That's where the Christian really does business with God. It's in the alone places, in the quiet places. And just as I could not make that promise to that mother and father as they bring their son, do you know what? I can make that promise to us as Christians. That if we commit ourselves and give ourselves to God and say, I'm going to get serious with you and commit myself to those quiet and those alone places where I can do business with you and you can do business with me. You know what? I can stand here today, if that's you, and say, I promise that if you do that, God will work in your heart and change you and make you a man or a woman of God that he can use for his own purpose. And do you know the truth is, do you know there's not too many of us that do that? There's not too many Christians that will do that, that will pay that price when there's so much more at stake. The Lord talked about treasure in heaven. And we have a promise that if we do that, we will be the beneficiaries of laying up treasure in heaven. God will bless us and his own name will be exalted and honored so different than the empty treasures of this life, treasures on earth. Well, let's pray. Father, I thank you for how you use the circumstances of each one of our lives and how you use the truth of your word to bring us to a deeper walk with you, a place of deeper commitment, a place of deeper understanding. The circumstances so often frustrate us and confuse us. And yet as we come and meet you in your word, we know that all is well because you are still in charge. I thank you for our time this morning. I thank you for this place. I thank you for these dear young people that are pursuing you. I pray that you direct their hearts, channel all their efforts towards treasure in heaven so that they at the time when they stand before you, would be able to give a good account for the things you've blessed them with. Thank you, Lord, for the day you've given us that's yet ahead. Help us to live it for you, that we might please you in everything, everything we say and do and think. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, thank you.